We're going to read from Romans 16, verses 17 to 23, as we're two lessons out from finishing the book of Romans. And I ask you to stand in recognition of God's word as we read from this text. Romans 16, 17 to 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may he give us understanding according to the power of his Holy Spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen. So in the first part of chapter 16... Paul had greeted, had sent greetings to 26 people, 26 members of the Roman church. When he suddenly inserts this warning about those who cause divisions with false teaching. Why does he do this? There is little he has said in the letter, in this long letter, that indicates he, he thinks there's any immediate danger of false teachers. So it's probably because there have been deceptive and divisive people in the other churches that he's served. And um, he's, he values the good work going on in Rome and, and the co-workers he knows there. So he feels it's prudent to warn them to watch out for deceivers. It's like warning against a, a highly contagious flu virus. It will inevitably come your way. But be diligent to keep up healthy habits, get inoculated, and watch for the illness to break out. In our day, many assume there is no truth that is true for all people in all places. Because there are so many different religious views, who can say they have the truth? That's arrogant and narrow-minded. The main worldview in our culture is all spiritual paths are equally valid that moving from one to the other is simply shifting your way of worshiping the same God or or life force, whatever you conceive him to be. We see faith as a sort of buffet line in which one can choose whatever slice of, of, of belief that looks most appealing. To the extent people in our churches have imbibed that worldview, talking about watching out for deceivers is going to sound extremist, going to sound weird. Once again, the Apostle Paul calls us to Christ-centered, gospel-centered faith and practice, regardless of how out of step it is with, with the, the History Channel or our culture's view of religion. 
So in verse 17, he makes a strong appeal to the Roman church to watch out for or to keep an eye out for uh, those who cause divisions, those who cause dissensions, and who create obstacles or stumbling blocks or offenses in the church. Watch out for those who create divisions and lead others away from the truth of Scripture and to wander from the true faith in, true, in the true Christ. How will such people cause these divisions and obstacles? Well, he says it's teaching what is contrary to the doctrine that they had been taught. That is, doctrine teaching that is not grounded and centered on the gospel as Paul has expounded it in this letter. Which he said was mainly review for them. Hey, I'm just, he said earlier, I'm just reviewing for you what you already know. So they already were grounded in the gospel and, and all of its implications. It's teaching is contrary to the scriptures. So question, do you know why you believe what you believe from the scriptures? Are you easy prey for false teaching, for cults, for smorgasbord of religious diets that are out there, worldly spiritualities, scripture-mocking scholars, pop psychology, self-help books and seminars, TV documentaries about religion, How do you recognize the counterfeit? Do you need to become an expert in various false teachings? Well, it can be helpful to be aware of some of the false teachings that are making the rounds. But the best way is to be the best way to be alert to what is true is to, to know the truth. To, to know the truth well. Paul could have described for them some of the most likely errors that these divisive false teachers would would bring. But he considered it enough that the Roman believers who said he back Paul said back in chapter fifteen that they were filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another, that they should be watchful and alert for such people. He's saying to them basically, if you become aware of, of the divisions that are taking place, of, of offshoots, people breaking off and following weird teaching, just trace it back to its source, see what's going on. How does Paul say we should deal with those who are creating divisions against gospel-centered doctrine, doctrine that's grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and what Christ has accomplished for us? Well, he says, um, avoid them. Stay away from them. You don't want to give anti-gospel, unbiblical truth a foothold in the church. We can't be in unity with such people because unity is in the truth. So we must keep away from them, he says. We avoid false teachers so they don't insert or integrate themselves into the life of the church and recruit people to their agenda. Now, this doesn't mean we hate them. doesn't mean we mistreat them or rude to them. But when it's evident a person or a group has an agenda to influence people away from gospel-centered truth, you should avoid them. Don't hang out with them. Don't invite them over to your house. Don't share with, share, have them come share in your Bible study group. Don't be close friends with them. In fact, Paul says in another place in Titus, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, so you give them two warnings and maybe they'll repent, but if not, then for the, the third time have nothing more to do with them. So once, twice, three strikes, you're out. 
In other words, instead of being open to every wind of teaching, we should keep sharp in the truth and not get infected with falsehood. Of course, today we have a lot more access to all kinds of teaching, both true and false, through the, through the media, through the webs, through the websites and, and um, various media. When asked what his message for his congregation is, a prominent megachurch pastor says, it's a positive message of tapping into the power of God within for self-fulfillment, self-actualization, for becoming a better you. He says he doesn't like to go with a lot of doctrine. It is teaching like this that we are most likely to be deceived by, Basically, that, that we're basically good people who just need a little bit of help to becoming a better us, to, to prosper more, to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's like those I saw making offerings to the monkey god in India. And as in India, and I saw people bringing food and fruit to the monkey god, I asked, uh, so what, why do you offer these things to the monkey god? And I was told, well, so that we can have good kids, be wealthy, and be um, healthy, and maybe even have a good spouse thrown in. We do it so that God will give us good things. Today, the gospel has been perverted that same way. The prosperity gospel is, is running like wildfire throughout the world, and it's, it's, the gospel is so that God can make you happy, make you wealthy, and make you prosper. So we use God like a genie. But what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, I think I have that up on the screen, 2, 15 to 17. Instead of just taking in every, every wind of teaching, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then Paul names names. He says, hey, stay away from these people. But how do we recognize these deceivers? Will they be obviously wicked people? Will they have a like a baseball cap that I'm a false teacher? If, if not, what, what if they are following uh, Jesus in their own way and, and we just have some different perspectives? Well, Paul says in verse 18, is he's not talking about true servants of Christ who just differ with us in some minor points of teaching. He says these people don't serve the Lord Jesus Rather, they serve their own appetites. Literally, they serve their own belly. They're in it for their belly. They're in it for their desires. Whether it's after money or sexual immorality or self-promotion, they just like to be first. They like saying, you know, nobody else is getting this but me, and so you need to follow me in order to get the, the true scoop on this teaching. Or they're in it to fill their own desires for their own self-serving agenda. Paul talks about this similarly in in the book of Philippians. He says, these people, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame that their minds are set on earthly things. Yeah, false teachers are rarely openly and obviously wicked people. They're very often very nice. They come across very warm and and sweet. They, um, They seek to deceive people by smooth talk and flattery. 
They use attractive, engaging, and winsome speech. This way they deceive the hearts of the naive, he says, the unsuspecting church people. You know, it's not more spiritual to be naive. So, I, hey, I don't need really to know the Bible that well. I'm just, I'm just spiritual. I kind of just tune into God on my own wavelength. It's not spiritual. They love to win people over to, to themselves so they can exercise spiritual control over them. Paul warned the church in Ephesus that um, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So they're experts in truth twisting. They, they don't teach blatant falsehood. Usually it's, it's taking the truth and putting a little spin on it, a little twist. Well, in verse 19, Paul is giving them a reason they need to be on guard. He says, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Their obedience to Christ is known to all, meaning to all the churches of the area, of the region, if not the whole Roman Empire. In fact, Paul, back in chapter 1 of Romans, had said, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So their faith is, is fam- they're famous for their faith and their obedience. Therefore, they are an attraction for those who seek to undermine the true gospel. Those who attain high status in sports or business become targets for competitors to take them down. So some of your teams have gone down because people are after them. Sad as it is. So it is with God's people. Those who are making good progress in gospel obedience are often just a a target for the enemy. Paul rejoiced over the Roman churches for their obedience. He didn't found the church, but because he loved what glorifies the name of Jesus, he was happy that their reputation for obeying Jesus displayed his his worth throughout the world. He's worth obeying. He's worth trusting in. So he's putting that on display by by they're putting that on display by their faith and obedience. What do you rejoice in at harvest? What do you appreciate about harvest? There are lots of things to be uh, to appreciate here. God has been very good to us. I hope that what one thing that we're known for is that we're growing in obedience to Jesus Christ. And what you should look for in a church if you leave Harvest, I don't know why you would, but <laughs> if you, it's God taking you out of the area for sure. If you leave Harvest, hopefully what you're looking for in another church is do they value and are they growing in obedience to Christ? To keep living in their obedience, Paul exhorts them to be wise in what is good and being innocent in what is evil. This echoes Jesus' words to his disciples that as they go out into the world to proclaim the gospel, that they be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as you seek to engage the world with the gospel, but stay innocent. Don't uh, become so immersed or accustomed to evil that your heart becomes desensitized to it. Instead, keep focused on what is good. So what's good to keep focused on? Well, the gospel is good. The word of God is good. Prayer is good. Worshiping God is good. Delighting and glorifying God is good. Serving others is good. 
be wise in discerning false teaching and threats to unity and the truth is a good thing. Be wise in avoiding those who would lead you into unbiblical beliefs or behaviors. J.B. Phillips paraphrased Romans 16:19 this way, I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. I once heard a man share his testimony. It went something like this. I was delivered from drug abuse, from sexual immorality, from alcohol abuse when I was six years old. That's when I received Jesus Christ and he protected me from falling into those things. So that's the reality of, of Christ delivering us from evil. In verse 20, Paul is saying that because the threat of division causing false teachers threatens the peace of the church, Paul assures the deliverance will come from God because he is the God of peace. True peace is not surrendering to evil or falsehood to let it have its way. It's like we don't make peace with ISIS by surrendering to it and just saying, hey, let's just be friends. Can we just get along? Ultimately, true peace involves the vanquishing of evil and falsehood. So Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because the devil is the father of lies, the enemy of God and his people, who is behind bringing deception and destruction into the church. Now, the near-term application of that, of Paul's words to the church in Rome, uh, God would, would give them victory over, over the deceivers if they came. There was no indication that necessarily any were soon to be there, but if they came, God would give them victory over that. So he could be saying that um, over the deceivers because they have the backing of Satan's organization. But what he says has ultimate fulfillment in the final casting of Satan and his team into the lake of fire. As it says in Romans in Revelation 20, verse 10. Some think the devil lives in hell now. He's actually here. He's not in hell. No, that's going to be his final prison. He's, he, he knows he's bound for that. But he's not stuck there yet. He knows his time is short, so like a vandal, like a terrorist, he's just been taking out his hostilities on on God's people. Paul's language reflects God's original declaration to the serpent who deceived the first woman into sinning along with the first guy, Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15, God said to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, devil's offspring, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring of the woman ultimately is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has also become man. Jesus would bruise the serpent's head. He would deal him a fatal blow to the head. Whereas the serpent would, would just bruise Jesus' heel. He experienced death temporarily. The offspring of the woman, Jesus, defeats the devil, defeats Satan. It says in 1 John 3.8 that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
but it kind of seems like the devil's still pretty active. So did he get defeated? Well, in one sense, he already did. So that's your cue, already, and there's not yet to it. Already Satan was defeated by Christ in his death and resurrection, but Satan's final sentencing and imprisonment has not yet been implemented. It's kind of interesting. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 25, it says, Christ must reign until he, sh- he has put all his enemies under his feet. But in Ephesians 1.22, uh, Paul writes, God has put all things under Christ's feet. So which is it, Paul? Has he put all things under Christ's feet or not? And what that phrase means, it's a military term that just refers to, hey, you just trounced your enemy. You got, you got the big victory. You got the big win over your enemy. So in other words, in one sense, already all powers are under Christ's feet. The decisive victory was accomplished on the cross and in Christ's resurrection. But not yet has Christ's triumph been applied in full. So we still have to deal with Satan firm while we're still here. His final defeat is absolutely certain because of Christ's finished redeeming work. But it's interesting that here in this verse, this is the only verse in the Bible that talks this way, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. The feet of believers. And the reason we will get to crush Satan under our feet is that we are in Christ and his triumphs are our triumphs. And will be our triumphs. Colossians chapter 2 speaks to this, in part at least. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your spiritual deadness, God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The, the devil is kind of like the, 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 the naughty kid who's an expert in other people's doing the right thing. Like some of the worst people, are they know what's right for, for you. Hey, he did this, he did that, he's, he's so wrong. Meanwhile, they're twice, ten, hundred times the worst than the person they're accusing. That's why Satan is called the accuser. His name means he's the accuser of, of God's people. He knows God's word way better than any of us, and he's an expert at accusing us. But by nailing our sins to the cross, Jesus took all of the damning weapons out of the devil's hands. Are you glad about that? Does that do anything for you? Now he can rage against us, but he cannot condemn. The only weapon Satan can successfully use against us for eternal spiritual harm for eternal spiritual harm, is unforgiven sin. That's the only thing he can do to us, is is ensure that our sins are not forgiven. And the way he does that is he distorts us and seeks to prevent us from coming to faith in Christ. But all of our sins have been forgiven. All of our sins have been forgiven. 
The devil's team has been disarmed, routed in shame. They, they were just trounced. They're, they are the biggest losers. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we can stand against the schemes of the devil by putting on God's armor. And basically what that means is through faith obedience, donning all that we have in Christ. And we use the word of God saturated in prayer. While Jesus was still on earth before his resurrection, he resisted the devil's temptations by quoting scripture. So do you have any scripture that you can pull out when you need it for battling discouragement, battling deception, for battling temptations to um, abuse drugs and alcohol? Do you have scriptures that you can stand on, that you can use to deal with unforgiveness? Whatever he can take advantage of you to cause you to doubt God's goodness, to destroy your faith. That's what he's after. He wants to, he wants to make a mockery of your faith. He wants to, to cause you to, to distrust God and to not rely upon him. Sometimes it's just causing us, tempting us to live for this world as if it's ultimate, loving it more than loving God and his glory. Romans 16.20 is a glorious promise to struggling, suffering saints when it seems as if evil has the upper hand and Satan is devouring the world. Now, there's one word in that verse we haven't talked about yet, we need to talk about, and that's the word soon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Paul wrote that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, he could have been saying soon he'll... He'll stop the satanic attack on your church to them back then, and, and it could have had an application there. But the final fulfillment of these words hasn't happened yet. Is 2,000 years and counting soon for Jesus' return and final defeat of Satan? Seemed like he's taking his time. Well, you may be familiar with Peter's words, where he said, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He did say that. Three, three times in Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming soon. So what does soon mean? Well, it's too soon if you haven't repented and turned to Jesus because you're not ready to meet him in death or in his return. You can only be ready to meet him when you, when you die or when he returns if you have turned from trusting in your own goodness and recognize your need for a perfect goodness to withstand final judgment from God. Only Jesus has a perfect goodness acceptable to God. You must receive him by faith so that you can have his goodness credited to you. If you have done that, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, we are to live with the expectation that he could come in any generation but our ultimate hope is in his return, our resurrection with new bodies, Satan's final imprisonment, new heavens and new earth. We trust God's timing. We're like children on what seems like a long car trip who keep saying to their parents, how much longer? When are we going to get there? When we grow up, what seemed like forever wasn't so long after all. 
That's how it will be when Jesus returns and, and we are resurrected. And Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Being ready for Christ's return and for participating in, in the shattering of Satan will only be, be because of the grace of Christ is with us. Only by his grace. And what I love about what Paul does here is he's, he's inserted this, um, this brief but intense warning and promise. And then he just returns to closing greetings. He's sending greetings from his colleagues in Corinth, Greece. And what I take away from this is just regular faithful Christians are God is using to build his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the gates are, are defensive. Like they're trying to defend his, his holdings, Satan's holdings. But the gospel will win the day. Paul uses regular people like Timothy. He was his closest co-worker. He became part of Paul's mission team on his second missionary journey. Lucius, Jason, Jason and Sosipater were fellow Jews. Jason had hosted Paul in Thessalonica. Paul lets his secretary, Tertius, insert his own word. So he was dictating this to a guy named Tertius. And Tertius said, hey, I'm here. I wrote this letter. I greet you. Must have been pretty exciting for him to actually get to say, hey, I, I, I wrote Romans. <laughs> Gaius hosted the whole church of Corinth in his house, so he, had, he was quite a guy. And all we know of Erastus is he was the city treasurer, and we don't know who Cordus was, but he shows up here. So uh, let's pray and ask God to work through this text. Father, we thank you that you have given us certain victory over our own sin, which is our biggest enemy, and the access that the devil had to us through it, that one day the victory that Christ purchased for us on the cross and in his resurrection will be fully implemented, and there will be no more deception, no more evil, no more wickedness, in us and in the world. But until that time, Father, we're you're using us to build your church. You're using us to expand the knowledge and the glory of, of the grace of Jesus throughout our neighborhoods and the nations. So strengthen us, Father. May we be alert to all the ways that we're easily deceived by worldly teaching and false teaching. And, and may we, Father, prize and treasure your word. Sharpen our, our alertness to your truth. Grant us strength in your truth, in the gospel, to resist going with the flow of the culture, with our own propensity to sin. And may we delight ourselves in being obedient to you, Father. May we have a reputation. May, by your grace, grant us a reputation of being obedient to Christ. We're, Far from perfect, but we, we long for that. We want that. We want that for us, Father, for our obedience to be characteristic, obedience to Christ be characteristic of Harvest Community Church. And, Father, I pray for anyone who hasn't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they would do that today. Not spare another moment. 
risking dying an unforgiven sin and not having the righteousness of Christ as our covering. Thank you, Father, for giving us this word of hope, this word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.